Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. I've mentioned before that I recently launched a new true crime podcast called Dirty Money Moves Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast is a deep dive investigation into a woman that I met four years ago, and she turned out to be a prolific scam artist. I started researching her earlier this year and got so much more than I bargained for. The story is absolutely wild, and there's even a connection to the Michael Jackson scandal. And that's just one shocking aspect of this unbelievable story. Subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you listen to podcasts. The American justice system was created, in part, to ensure that all Americans get fair and impartial administration of justice. But the system is by no means perfect, and sometimes the wrong person is convicted of a serious crime. But what happens when a person is sentenced to death, and years later, new evidence is brought to light that casts doubt on their guilt? Lester Bauer Jr. maintained his innocence for decades, and eventually, new witnesses came forward and backed up Bauer's claim of innocence. But would this be enough to save him from being executed? This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Lester Bauer Jr. This case takes us to Sherman, Texas, about an hour's drive north of Arlington. Sherman is a small town on the outskirts of some larger Dallas-Fort Worth suburbs that's focused on Southern hospitality and minding your mama. At the time this story took place, Sherman embodied every country song stereotype you can imagine. Old dirt roads, knowing everybody in town, and going to the same church every Sunday. In 1983, the sleepy town was shocked when a horrific crime took place at an airport hangar, leaving four men dead and many unanswered questions. Bobby Tate said goodbye to her husband, Bob Tate, on the morning of October 8, 1983. Bob was going to meet some of his friends at an airport hangar in Sherman, Texas. Bob told his wife that he and his friends were planning on selling his ultralight aircraft to a man who was driving in from Dallas. After a few hours passed, Bobby began to wonder when her husband was going to call or be back home. 
A few more hours passed, and Bobby's worry had turned to an uneasy fear. Something told her that her husband was in danger. Bobby, along with her son, decided to drive up to the hangar to check in on Bob and hopefully ease her anxiety. Bobby and her son drove north going up Highway 82 until they got to Baker Street, the road on which the hangar was located. The two of them entered the airport hangar and walked into a scene that would forever change the lives of five families. Bobby opened the door to the hangar and was mortified when she saw that her husband, Bob, along with three of his best friends, Philip Good, Ronald Mays, and Jerry Mac Brown, were all dead. Three of the men, Bob included, had a rug laid over their bodies, while Ronald Mays's body was lying near the hangar door, covered in blood. Petrified, Bobby grabbed her son, ran out of the hangar, and immediately called local authorities. When law enforcement arrived, they quickly began investigating the shocking crime. The four victims were all very close friends. They hung out on weekends, often watching college football, hunting, and barbecuing together. Philip Good was married with children and worked as a Grayson County Sheriff's deputy. Jerry Brown, also married with kids, was a painting contractor. Ronald Mays was a former Sherman police officer, and Bob Tate was a self-employed interior designer with a wife and son. The four men led relatively typical lives, at least in the public eye. They had families, well-paying jobs, and a great circle of friends. This rosy image, however, would be called into question decades after they were murdered. The investigation into the quadruple homicide began slowly. All of the men died from multiple gunshot wounds to the head and torso. Bob, Philip, and Jerry, whose bodies were covered under a rug, were shot execution-style, twice in the head, at point-blank range. The fourth man, Ronald, was shot five times in the head and torso in an unpatterned style, leading investigators to believe that he may have either attempted to flee the scene or had accidentally walked in on the slayings and while trying to leave without being noticed, was shot multiple times from behind. Other than the rug being placed over three of the victims, not much else was changed or cleaned up at the crime scene. Shell casings found at the scene indicated that an automatic weapon was used, and oddly, a business card was found on the body of Bob Tate. Something else that law enforcement could not ignore was the ultralight aircraft was not in the hangar when they arrived. Initially, investigators didn't have much to go off of in regard to leads. Bobby Tate told authorities that her husband met up with his friends that morning to potentially sell an ultralight aircraft to a man from Dallas, but she didn't have the name of or any information about the potential buyer. For months, authorities attempted to locate the man that was supposed to have bought the aircraft, it wasn't until investigators noticed a pattern of phone calls to the same phone number that a break in the case was made. Philip Good's phone records indicated that he'd called the same phone number multiple times, and the calls were made over a few days leading up to the murders. The last call was placed only hours before the time law enforcement believed Philip and his friends were killed. When authorities traced the phone number, they were able to link it to a man living in Arlington, Texas, a man named Lester Bauer Jr. When questioned about the phone calls, 
Lester told authorities that he'd been interested in purchasing the aircraft, but that he ended up not going through with the deal and never showed up at the aircraft hangar. Thinking their one lead was a dead end, investigators moved on from Lester, but continued searching for the ultralight aircraft that was missing from the hangar. Investigators knew that one of the last people to have seen the four men alive would likely have the airplane in their possession. Over time, investigators grew frustrated over the lack of evidence and leads. Months went by and investigators decided to circle back to the only person of interest they had uncovered. In January of 1984, Lester Bauer Jr. got a knock at his door. This time, investigators came armed with a search warrant. They remained suspicious of Lester because Philip had called him numerous times leading up to the crime, and Lester admitted that he was interested in buying the airplane. He was also one of the last people to speak with Philip before he was murdered. Things got interesting when investigators found dissected parts of the missing aircraft hidden throughout Lester's garage, including an aircraft wheel with the name Tate engraved on the side. After the airplane parts were discovered in his garage, Lester altered his story, saying that he did in fact go to the hangar and purchase the aircraft. However, Lester claimed that after he bought the airplane, he left. He said that at the time he left with the airplane, Ronald Mays hadn't even arrived at the hangar, so he only ever met three of the four murdered men. After this admission, Lester was arrested and charged with four counts of capital murder. Lester Bauer Jr. was born on November 20, 1947, in Kansas City, Missouri. There are no records that would point to him having an unhappy or abnormal childhood. After he graduated high school, Lester married Sherry, and soon the couple had two little girls. The Bauer family eventually moved to Texas, where Lester worked as a chemical salesman. Prior to his arrest relating to the quadruple homicide, Lester had no criminal record. Lester was a thrill seeker. Before moving to Texas, Lester and his family lived in Colorado, where he enjoyed a variety of outdoor adventures that tested his skills and endurance. His hobbies included skydiving, bow hunting, and whitewater rafting on rafts that he had built himself. After moving to Texas, however, Lester realized that most of his outdoor hobbies were no longer an option. In the early fall of 1983, Lester decided he wanted to chase a new adventure, flying ultralight airplanes. Though he was excited at the thought of a new hobby, his wife, Sherry, was very much against it. Lester was a large man, almost six feet tall and over 250 pounds. The idea of an ultralight aircraft carrying him through the sky with a motor as powerful as a lawnmower was concerning to Sherry. Discouraged but not defeated, Lester continued to keep his eye out for opportunities that would allow him to get in the pilot seat of an aircraft. Eventually, Lester got an opportunity to fly an airplane, and he loved every minute of it. Lester's fascination with aircrafts exploded, and he began contemplating how to buy an airplane of his own. He even considered trying to build his own aircraft, thinking that his wife could sew the wings and he could build the frame. At some point, Lester came across an ad in the classified section listing an ultralight aircraft for sale in Sherman, Texas, only an hour drive from where he lived. 
The phone number listed on the ad belonged to Philip Good. Lester called and set up a time to meet so he could check out the airplane and see if it suited him. Lester and Philip made a plan to meet on October 8, 1983. On the morning of October 8, Lester left the house, telling his wife, who still fervently disagreed with his interest in flying airplanes, that he was going bow hunting with some friends. Instead, Lester made his way up north to Sherman, Texas, to meet with Philip Good. With $3,000 cash in his pocket and a trailer hitched to his vehicle, Lester had every intention of buying the aircraft. He even had a hangar in mind where he would store the aircraft until he could get his wife on board with him flying. Lester did end up buying the airplane, though he denied it in his initial statement to investigators. When asked why he lied to law enforcement and dismembered and hid the aircraft, Lester said he was already nervous about lying to his wife about the airplane. And once he saw news coverage of what happened after he left the hangar, he became even more worried. Lester said he worried not only about his wife finding out that he went behind her back, but also that he could be implicated in the murders. When asked why he hadn't come forward sooner, Lester told authorities that he was already so far in, he thought it would be worse if he went back in to admit to purchasing the aircraft. By the time he was arrested, Lester Bauer Jr. appeared guilty to everyone on the outside. He'd lied to his wife and authorities, and then he attempted to conceal the airplane. As the state began to build their case against him, Lester and his defense team began preparing for the uphill battle that lay ahead. I'm trying to master the art of managing my day as efficiently as possible, which is why I wrote half of the script for this episode while getting my hair done for two hours recently. Another way I manage my day efficiently is by using stamps.com. I have saved countless hours printing USPS and UPS postage right from home, rather than taking a trip to the post office or shipping store. I save time and money with Stamps.com because my account provides up to 30% off USPS rates and up to 86% off UPS rates. And Stamps.com makes it so easy. All you need is a regular computer and printer, nothing fancy. Stamps.com works great with Shopify, Etsy, eBay, Amazon, and more. And businesses of all sizes are using it. From businesses who send invoices to those that ship products out of a big warehouse, Stamps.com can handle it. Your time is valuable and it shouldn't be wasted doing things the clunky way. Just think of how much more productive you and your business will be with more time each day. Let Stamps.com be the solution that creates that extra time and keeps more of your hard-earned money in your bank account. Stop wasting time and start saving money when you use Stamps.com to mail and ship. Sign up with promo code MURDERISH for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MURDERISH. Right now, just about everything we buy costs more than it did a year or two ago. Many of us are looking for ways to save because paying more for everything hurts. I recently downloaded the Upside app, and since then, I've been getting cash back on things I buy all the time, like gas, groceries, and eating out. 
To get started, download the free Upside app in the App Store or Google Play. Use my promo code MURDERISH and get $5 cash back or more on your first purchase of $10 or more. Then you just check in at the business, pay for whatever you're getting with a debit or credit card, and then sit back and get paid. There's nothing to it, and yes, it really works. After a couple of weeks worth of gas and grocery purchases, I cashed out in the Upside app and used my earnings toward an Amazon e-gift card. In addition to e-gift cards, you can cash out into your bank account or PayPal account. Using Upside is so easy and it's such a no-brainer, but only if you like earning cash back on things you're already buying. You can tell by Upside's 4.8 star rating in the App Store that people are earning a lot of cash back to the tune of over a million dollars each week. Download the free Upside app and use promo code MURDERISH to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code MURDERISH. Sometimes one compliment can make your entire day. I wore my Rothy's flats the other day with cut-off shorts and a tank top, and a woman tapped me on the shoulder to ask where I got my shoes. She loved the deep forest green color, and that's exactly why I bought them. Not only are Rothy's the most comfortable flats you'll ever wear, people notice them because they're stylish and chic. I get so much use out of my Rothy's. I've paired them with yoga pants, jeans, and skirts. My look tends to be very casual from day to day but Rothy's would also be perfect for the office. They pair so well with slacks, pencil skirts, and other professional looks. And when your Rothy's get dirty, you can just toss them into the washer, which is so convenient. Rothy's are known for their pointed toe flats, but they also have a lot of other eye-catching designs that you will love. And there's no need to break in your Rothy's. From the first moment you slip them on, your feet are going to thank you. Trust me, I've worn my Rothy's to an all-day convention, and no band-aids were needed the next day. Wearing Rothy's feels like you're walking on pillows, and you look damn good doing it. Your new favorite shoes are waiting. Discover the versatile styles you can wear absolutely anywhere, and get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com murderish. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot murderish for $20 off your first order. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Nothing is more annoying than having an exciting day planned only to wake up to bad allergies. First world problems, I know, but sometimes allergies ruin my entire day. If you suffer from allergies, I know you understand my struggle. No one wants to go through the day sounding like they're talking underwater. Luckily, we have Astapro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Between my daughter's school events, Zoom meetings, and podcast recording sessions, I don't have time to deal with allergy issues. And who wants to listen to a podcast when I sound like this? Luckily, you don't have to, because I use Astapro for quick and effective relief. 
You're welcome. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Lester's trial began only a couple of months after he was arrested. The prosecution opened by painting him as a hidden criminal, someone who had skated by in his youth and young adult life, but could no longer hide his criminal desires. The prosecution claimed that Lester was a pathological liar who thought he could outsmart local authorities, the FBI, and his entire community. The prosecution told the jury that Lester had gone to the airplane hangar on the afternoon of October 8th with the intention of killing Philip Good, Robert Tate, Ronald Mays, and Jerry Brown, and stealing their aircraft. The state argued that Lester was a cold, calculated, and heartless murderer whose only care was getting what he wanted without having to take any responsibility for his actions. The defense, led by Jared Buckner, opened by describing Lester much differently than the prosecution had. They highlighted Lester's lack of a criminal history, pointing out that not even any minor offenses in his youth could be found that would point to any hidden desire for mischief. The defense also highlighted that Lester and his family were happy. They were a family who loved and took care of each other, something a heartless criminal wouldn't be capable of. The defense promised the jury that the prosecution did not have enough evidence to prove that Lester was the man who murdered four people and that though he lied out of fear, he was completely innocent of the charges that had been brought against him. At the onset of trial, the prosecution pointed out the blatant lie that Lester told authorities when they asked if he'd been to the aircraft hangar. The prosecution claimed that an innocent man would have immediately told the truth about what he knew, knowing that hiding anything would only make him look more guilty. The defense argued that having already lied to his wife, Lester felt embarrassed about being caught. The defense said that Lester believed the white lie he initially told investigators was inconsequential since he wasn't involved in the murders. He'd only lied to authorities to keep his wife from finding out that he'd been untruthful to her. The defense also pointed out that after his lie was uncovered, Lester immediately came clean about every interaction he'd had with the victims and had since maintained his story perfectly. Following the advice of his attorneys, Lester didn't take the stand, but his account of what happened on the day of the murders was recounted for the jury. After arriving at the hangar in Sherman, Texas, Lester said he began examining the aircraft and talking to Philip, Bob, and Jerry. He asked them about the plane's abilities and how often it had been used. Lester noted that at the time he was at the hangar, Ronald Mays wasn't there. After talking for a while, Lester decided he wanted to buy the aircraft. Though the ad was placed by Philip, the plane belonged to Bob Tate. Bob was asking $4,500 for the airplane, but Lester said he only had $3,000 on him. Lester recalled the three men agreeing to accept the $3,000 up front and that he could pay the remaining balance at a later time. Lester wrote Bob an IOU for the remaining $1,500 on a business card he had in his back pocket. And then the deal was done. 
Bob, Philip, and Jerry then helped Lester dismantle the plane and load it onto his trailer, at which point Lester said he left the three men, very much alive, at the airplane hangar. The prosecution pointed out to the jury what they considered to be numerous inaccuracies in Lester's version of events, details they claimed would prove he was in fact the man who killed the four victims. The prosecution explained that after Bobby Tate discovered the bodies of her husband and his three friends, authorities immediately canvassed the scene. Despite Lester claiming that he'd handed over $3,000 in cash, that amount of money wasn't found at the scene. There was also no discovery of a receipt, something that surely would have been issued for a purchase so large, according to the prosecution. The state conceded that there was, in fact, a business card found on the body of Bob Tate. However, the information on that card was never disclosed to the jury or the defense team. The prosecution also presented another crime scene finding that pointed to Lester's guilt. According to authorities, the 22 caliber shell casings found at the scene were Fiocchi ammunition shell casings, an Italian-made ammo that was apparently very rare. The state claimed they had evidence of Lester purchasing that type of ammo and that a very limited amount of the ammo had been purchased in the area. Though the prosecution never found the murder weapon, they claimed that the rare ammo linked Lester to the murders. The defense didn't have much of an angle to argue. They had no theories or suspects that could cast a reasonable doubt, no witnesses that could proclaim Lester's innocence, and no evidence that would point to someone else. Given this, the defense turned to the only thing they had, Lester's good character. At the time of his arrest, Lester had no prior run-ins with the law. He was a citizen in good standing, who'd lived his life following the rules. The defense called numerous character witnesses to testify about Lester's outstanding character. These witnesses recounted story after story about how Lester was a great man, always willing to lend a helping hand. Witnesses said that Lester was a passionately religious man who always made sure that he and his family were at any event the church was hosting. Lester's friends, family, colleagues, and members of his church all agreed that he was incapable of murder. The defense then rested their case, hoping they had presented enough for the jury to find reasonable doubt in the state's mostly circumstantial case. In closing, the prosecution urged the jury to bring justice to the families of the four men who were callously murdered. They said these men's lives were taken by a man who simply wanted to steal an aircraft worth only $4,500. The state closed by assuring the jury that Lester was guilty of murdering Philip Good, Bob Tate, Ronald Mays, and Jerry Brown, four best friends who were simply trying to sell an airplane. On the afternoon of April 27, 1984, the jury was released to decide on a verdict. After deliberating for just a few hours, they returned with their decision. Lester Bauer Jr. was found guilty on all four counts of capital murder. The families of the victims were overjoyed with the outcome, convinced that justice had been served. On the other side of the courtroom stood Bauer's family, who were devastated, though they remained composed in the courtroom. Sherry Bauer recalled a chaotic scene on the day her husband was supposed to be sentenced. 
There was a carnival happening on the streets in front of the courthouse, and Lester's trial had become a spectacle, something of a town party. The community came out in mass and celebrated the guilty verdict handed down to Lester. Sherry recalled that a number of men dressed in full clown attire and makeup had to be removed from the courtroom for being allowed distraction. As soon as they were escorted out, more men dressed as clowns took their spots. The courtroom had become a circus, one that mocked the heavy reality unfolding in front of them. The day after Lester was found guilty, the jury was tasked with deciding on his sentence, and death was one of the options. While awaiting sentencing, Sherry Bauer was allowed to sit beside her husband. When she leaned over to ask him what he was thinking, Lester responded, You know what's going to happen, right? They wouldn't find me guilty of a crime this gruesome and not sentence me to death. Lester seemed to know what was coming when the jury re-entered the courtroom after just over an hour of deliberation. And his instincts were right. The jury handed down four sentences of death by lethal injection, one for each of the victims. I was in a hair slump because I couldn't find the right shampoo and conditioner to give my hair the lift and body it needed. Then I used Pro's shampoo and conditioner, which was formulated uniquely for me and my specific hair needs. And now that I've been using Pro's for a few months, I love the way my hair looks and feels. Here's why Pro's is so great. You'll start off by taking an in-depth quiz that asks you questions like your eating habits, zip code, and more. I answered questions about my hair being straight and the length being just past my shoulders. When I was done with the hair consultation, Pros recommended hair products that are made with a unique blend of ingredients that helped my previously flat and dull hair become full and fabulous. Pros recommended hair products that are made with a unique blend of ingredients that helped my previously flat and dull hair become full and fabulous. Pros is the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral and I love that their products are made with clean ingredients that are cruelty-free and sustainably sourced. I use Pro Shampoo and Conditioner every week and Pro's Dry Shampoo in between washes, and my hair has never looked better. Pro's is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com murderish that's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash murderish for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. My husband has been teaching himself how to grill food over the last few years. Now, every birthday or holiday, he asks for gifts like barbecue grill accessories and subscriptions for really good meat. For Father's Day, I'm getting him Masterclass. Masterclass offers a wide variety of classes from some of the world's best minds. Classes can be taken on a computer, smart TV, smartphone, or tablet, and classes are tailored to people on the go. Masterclass courses are usually about 10 to 15 minutes long, and you can take them at your own pace. Here's why I think my husband will love Masterclass. There's a Texas barbecue class taught by Aaron Franklin, the award-winning owner of Franklin Barbecue, where the line to get in is hours long. Aaron's Texas barbecue class is perfect for my husband and selfishly for me too, because I get to eat whatever he learns to make after taking the masterclass. In addition to cinema quality video lessons, 
Masterclass provides supplemental materials and lesson recaps you can download, like the beautiful guides you can download for their cooking classes. With masterclasses that start at just $180 per year, I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a Murderish listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash murderish now. That's masterclass.com slash murderish for 15% off masterclass. If you're running an online business, you need a solid commerce platform to run and scale your business. Shopify isn't just a store. It's an all-in-one solution to sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and get key insights on your business, like profitability, conversion rates, and so much more. What's also great is that Shopify doesn't just serve big businesses. Startups and small businesses can also benefit from first sale to full scale. Shopify allows you to reach customers across major social media networks, like Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, Facebook, and more. And we all know how important social media is for businesses of all sizes and types. With Shopify, your business can accept all major payment methods and you can access thousands of third-party apps from accounting to on-demand printing and chatbots. Every 28 seconds, an entrepreneur just like you makes their first sale on Shopify and hears that gratifying cha-ching sound. Go to shopify.com slash murderish, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash murderish right now. Shopify.com slash murderish. For the families of the victims, this was seemingly the end of a chapter from which they were eager to move on. For the Bowers, however... Their journey was just beginning. Because Lester was sentenced to death, his case sparked an immediate appeal. In the following years, Lester fervently maintained his innocence as numerous appeals made their way through the legal system. Lester's appeals were based on multiple factors, one being an incompetent defense. Lester claimed that his attorney, Jared Buckner, who's currently a sitting Texas judge, decided very early on how he wanted to prove his client's innocence, and his strategy only served to hinder Lester. Initially, though Lester had already admitted to going to the hangar and purchasing the ultralight aircraft, which was later found in his garage, Buckner told Lester that they were going to go with the original story, that Lester had never been to the hangar or met any of the victims. Buckner held on to this tactic for as long as he could before realizing there was plenty of evidence that placed Lester at the hangar. It was only then that Buckner decided to refocus his strategy to include Lester's second statement to detectives in his defense. Lester also claimed that he very much wanted to testify at his trial, but Buckner insisted that it was a bad idea. Lester was aggressive in his attempt to get on the stand but Jared Buckner all but forbade him from testifying. Though he initially lied to authorities, Lester believed he would be able to convince the jury that what he said after his initial statements was the truth. Despite his repeated requests, Lester never took the stand, something he deeply regretted. Other evidence-based inconsistencies were uncovered during the appeals process details that had been totally missed or contorted by the prosecution. 
One major piece of evidence that the state used to connect Lester to the crime scene was later determined by an outside source to be inaccurate. The ammunition found at the crime scene was described by the prosecution as being very rare, something that very few people in the area had, and something that was only used in automatic weapons by someone with the intent to murder. In truth, the Fiocchi ammo was fairly common amongst hunters who hunted small game, something that Lester frequently did. Lester's defense attorney, Jared Buckner, failed to present this information to the jury, leaving them no alternative to the prosecution's claims that the ammo was rare. As Lester sat on death row, he was repeatedly disappointed to hear that appeal after appeal was rejected. His wife, Sherry, remained faithful to him during this time, claiming that bad timing was to blame for her husband's conviction. Sherry believed that Lester was innocent and she was willing to stay by his side until it could be proven. Not known to be a troublemaker, Lester followed the same behavior in prison, following the rules and staying out of trouble. Prison life, of course, was a major adjustment for him, though he and other death row inmates were given free time out of their cells. They could also earn privileges and hold down jobs. A few years after Lester arrived at the prison, however, a group of nine death row inmates planned a riot which resulted in much harsher restrictions, including their jobs and other privileges being revoked. Death row inmates were forced to remain in their cells for 23 hours a day, with no windows or bars to visualize anything other than the four walls that surrounded them. Lester remained composed during the time of change and continued to maintain his innocence. He continued to express deep regret over being untruthful to law enforcement at the start of the investigation. He told reporters that if he'd just been upfront about what happened that day, he never would have been arrested and convicted of murdering the four men. Years went by and then new information came to the surface that brought new attention to Lester's case. A woman came forward with a shocking story, one that would give the Bowers some hope for an overturned conviction. In 1989, a woman who went by the alias name Pearl told a story of an ex-lover who she believed was guilty of the crime for which Lester Bauer Jr. was serving time. In October of 1983, Pearl told authorities that she was dating a man named Lynn. She remembered that around that time, he'd come home one day in a terrible mood. He seemed agitated, shaken up, and worried. Pearl told authorities that when she pressed Lynn for details, he told her that he and a few friends, Bear, Rocky, and Chez, were driving through Sherman earlier in the afternoon for a dope deal. Lynn told Pearl that for some reason, the deal went bad and they had to shoot four people. Pearl, skeptical of her boyfriend and assuming he was just making the story up to scare her, later became worried when she overheard Lynn and one of his friends talking about the murders and making jokes about it. Pearl told authorities that she began to think Lynn was telling the truth because he started having crippling nightmares. According to Pearl, Lynn would wake up screaming and sweating. He told Pearl that in his dreams, he could see the eyes of his victims staring straight at him and he could hear the sound of bullets ricocheting off the tin airport hangar they were in. Pearl said he seemed to be haunted by the murders he'd allegedly committed. Though Pearl was now convinced that Lynn was telling the truth, she had no way of knowing who the victims were 
until she saw the story of Lester Bauer Jr. Lester's story had made the news a couple of times due to his insistence on being innocent and his multiple denied appeals. One day, while reading the newspaper, Pearl read about Lester's story and the crimes he'd supposedly committed. After reading the article, she was positive that her ex-boyfriend Lynn was the man responsible for the airport hangar murders and that Lester Bauer Jr. was sentenced to die for a crime he didn't commit. Though she was initially nervous, Pearl knew she had to come forward. She couldn't let an innocent man die without trying to get the truth out. Pearl approached authorities and told them what she believed to be true, that her ex-boyfriend Lynn and his three friends were responsible for the murders of Philip Good, Bob Tate, Jerry Brown, and Ronald Mays, and that it was a drug deal gone wrong. After the new information became public knowledge, another woman anonymously stepped forward to corroborate Pearl's claim. The second woman was later revealed to be the wife of one of Lynn's accomplices, who said she experienced very similar events to those Pearl described after the second weekend of October in 1983. Once these claims were made public, more ineptitude in Lester's defense was found. Apparently, back in 1983, it was well known that Bob Tate had connections to an Oklahoma drug cartel one that Lynn and his buddies belonged to. Though this was known by the prosecution, they didn't disclose it during Lester's trial. Had the defense looked deeper into the backgrounds of the four murdered men, they would have uncovered a history of shady drug dealings that may have offered another viable theory of the crime, a drug deal gone bad. After the new revelations, Lester, alongside his new defense team that had been working pro bono for the past few years, drafted a new appeal that included the information Pearl had brought forward. Lester and his defense team remained hopeful as the appeal was submitted, so much so that Lester began preparing himself for life on the outside. Months later, a decision on the appeal was made. The judge denied Lester's appeal leaving him and his family devastated once again. Despite denying his appeal, the judge did concede something that was almost more devastating than the denial itself. In his response to the appeal, the judge wrote that had this evidence been available to the jury at the time of the initial trial, he was sure that the outcome of the trial would have been much different. Unfortunately, reasonable doubt was no longer the liberator that Lester needed. He needed proof beyond any shadow of a doubt that he was innocent and that someone else was undeniably guilty. The stories of the two women, with no evidence brought forth to support their claims, wasn't enough to free Lester or even take him off of death row. As Lester's final execution date drew closer, his defense team continued to file stays of execution to allow more time to find a critical piece of evidence that could possibly clear Lester's name, all the while knowing it was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Lester's luck finally did run out when a judge denied his stay of execution request. He was scheduled for execution on June 3, 2015. Lester had served over three decades in prison, and maintained his innocence the entire time. Sherry Bauer was by her husband's side through all of it, never wavering on her belief that Lester was innocent. A lot happened during those three decades. Lester's two daughters grew up, 
got married, and had families of their own. But the grandchildren would never get the opportunity to bond with their grandfather. Lester's final appeal was denied only hours before his scheduled execution. On the day he was scheduled to die by lethal injection, Lester seemed composed. According to loved ones, he had long since come to peace with the future that awaited him. Lester claimed he found peace in knowing that after such a long time, he would finally be able to go to heaven, where he would wait patiently to be reunited with his wife. At 67 years old, Lester was the oldest inmate on death row in Texas. During the early evening hours of June 3, 2015, the mood was somber as Lester was prepared for execution. There were two viewing rooms, one for family and one for press and others. Philip Good's wife was in attendance and watched as Lester was brought into a room, strapped to a table, and given one last opportunity to speak. As reported in the Herald Democrat, Lester's final words were, Much has been said and much has been written about this case. Not all of it has been the truth, but the time is over to discern the truth. And now it is time to move on. I want to thank my attorneys for all that they have done. They have afforded me the last quarter of a century. I would like to thank my wife, my daughters, family, and friends for unwavering support and all of the letters and well wishes over the years. Now it is time to pass on. I have fought the good fight. I have held the faith. I am not going to say goodbye. I will simply say until we meet again, I love you very, very much. At 6.18 p.m., Lester Bauer Jr. was injected with a lethal dose of pentobarbital. Viewers watched as he slowly drifted into a sleep, letting out a few snoring noises. At 6.36 p.m., Lester's eyeglasses were removed and he was pronounced dead. The rooms were silent, aside from crying that could be heard in the family room. For those who believed that Lester Bauer Jr. was a murderer, they could rest knowing that he'd been punished for the pain he had inflicted on the families of his victims. Lester's family found peace in believing that he was in heaven. Though heartbroken, they moved on with life, trusting that he was in a much better place. Texas has consistently remained the state with the highest number of executions by far. The ethics of the death penalty are widely debated and it's cases like Lester Bauer Jr.'s that reignite conversations regarding whether people should be sentenced to death. Many people believe there are flaws in our criminal justice system that could lead to innocent people being put to death. For that reason, among others, they believe the death penalty should be abolished. Others maintain that certain crimes are so heinous, the only true justice is an eye for an eye. If Lester Bauer Jr. didn't kill Bob Tate, Philip Good, Ronald Mays, and Jerry Mack Brown, the truth will likely never surface because the moment someone is put to death for a crime, the case essentially dies too. If Lester did murder the four men, perhaps justice was served. No matter where you stand on the death penalty issue, the families of the victims and the person who was executed for the crime will never be the same again. Though they often sit on opposite sides of the courtroom during a trial, these families, not wantingly, share something in common, the death of a loved one, whether by illegal or legal actions. 
Remember to subscribe to my new podcast, Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime, in your favorite podcast app. I appreciate you guys for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you've binged every episode and don't want to wait for the next one to drop, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. As soon as you sign up to become a Murderish Patreon supporter, you'll get immediate access to a bunch of ad-free episodes that cover cases not available on the free version of the podcast. To become a Patreon supporter, visit Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes, or just go to Patreon.com and search for Murderish there. I want to say a huge thank you to Maxim K, Catherine, Tammy H, and Jamie for becoming Patreon supporters. Thank you all so much. I appreciate your support. If you enjoy Murderish, there are so many ways you can support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast or leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. This helps other people find the show easier. You can also wear a Murderish t-shirt while you're out and about. And trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Check out Murderish.com for a link to buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. Also, follow Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. Murderish audio editing and sound design is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgman. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include a June 11, 2015 NBC Universal News Group article by the Associated Press at NBCNews.com, a June 3, 2015 Herald Democrat article by the Associated Press at HeraldDemocrat.com, a June 4, 2015 BBC News article by the Associated Press at BBC.com, a June 4, 2015 Guardian News and Media article by Tom Dart at TheGuardian.com, a 2015 Al Jazeera America article at america.aljazeera.com, a 2015 ABC News Network article by Ben Candia and Megan Keneally at abcnews.go.com, a June 14, 2015 Politico Magazine article by Tim Madigan at politico.com, an article by Jordan Smith at The Intercept dated June 1, 2015, found at theintercept.com.